Welcome back to the In-Laws Podcast. I'm Sophia. And I'm Brianne. We're two law students who created this podcast to talk about law school, law talk, and everything in between. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the In-Laws Pod and our law school pages at Law and at Brianne and Law. For this week's episode, we're joined by Samantha, aka Samantha Y. Chang. She is a 2L at a law school in California who posts a ton of fashion and lifestyle content. Welcome to the pod, Samantha. Thanks for having me. We decided we wanted to do like a sort of serious like educational episode and then like a fun one and go like back and forth. So this is one of our fun ones. So perfect because I can't educate anyone on anything. So that's good to know. This will be a hee hee ha ha episode for everybody. So yeah, we're not going to be like quizzing you on the history of prep fashion, but um, if anyone <laughs> is interested in that, there's a really good You're Wrong About episode about it. <laughs> okay, so sort of like the the beginning, the setup for the episode for you is since you are in law school and you create content about fashion, the first question is, why did you decide to go to law school? All right, kind of a long-winded story. I'll give you guys the part of the answer I give employers and then part of the real answer as well. So, I mean, both are real, but the extent to which they're real is a little different, I guess. So I was an English major in undergrad. I went to UC Davis, which is in Northern California, and I started there in 2014. And um, I guess something that's important to know for the purposes, no, actually it's not, Never mind. I'll circle back. Um, okay, so I went to UP Davis for undergrad and I was an English major and I really liked being an English major. Like I was so obsessed, I loved all my lectures, but I was also kind of like, what the fuck am I gonna do with this degree? And I just really didn't know where I wanted to go. And one day there was like a club on campus and they were giving out free Chipotle burritos and I wanted to go get one. They're like, oh, just come here and get a burrito. And so I went to go get like this Chipotle burrito. And they were like, actually, this is an LSAT workshop with Blueprint. And then I was like, oh, okay. And they gave us like these workbooks where we did logic games. I remember this really clearly. And I was just kind of sitting there like, okay, I'm just going to find a moment to flip out with my burrito. And then lo and behold, there's like an instructor there. And like, I'm too embarrassed to slip out at this point. So I'm just sitting there doing the workbook they gave me with like maybe like 10 questions on or something like that. End up um, getting all the questions right. And then I was, oh, maybe I'll go to law school and I'll be kind of interested in that. That was totally like, a, I don't know, it's kind of a false start there or whatever, because honestly, my, by far and away, my perfection of the element was logic game. I thought that that would be so easy after when that worked. I went to elementary school actually part of my time in Taiwan. And instead of a class center, they teach logic games to children. And so that's why I was doing so well. It wasn't like some amazing like feat that like my 12-year-old brother can replicate the same thing, you know? So that was kind of my start to thinking about maybe wanting to attend law school. And then I would say until my junior year, I was pretty set on that. I actually took the LSAT, um, I think, early my sophomore year. And I was just short of the score that I had wanted. Um, I actually lost during the exam because I was so stressed about it. And I don't know why I put much pressure on myself. But yeah, I got really stressed. I fell asleep during it. And I was kind of questioning whether I still wanted to go. But I just continued to kind of pursue a pre-law path, which is easy since there's no required courses like med school. And then around my senior year, I actually decided that I would much rather continue to pursue English. So I really wanted to pursue a PhD specifically in Asian, well, English and then Asian American literature, because you can't really, um, it's hard to get a degree, an interdisciplinary degree, like ethnic studies and still be hireable in that market. So essentially I was like, I wanna get an English degree, but I wanna be an Asian American studies professor. Then I found out that the tenureship rates for women of color in the humanities were like, well, the percent of tenured professors for women of color is only like 10%. And then only 30% of humanities professors were tenured at the time. Otherwise you're making like 50 to 60K per year after seven more years of schooling in addition to undergrad. So after college, I started working for a little bit 
And when I first graduated, I thought 50 to 60K was a lot. I just didn't have a very good sense of money. I quickly realized that like, at least for living in a major city like Los Angeles, and I love to eat a lot of nice food and I like shopping a lot. It just wasn't a viable path for me. And I could think to myself, like, maybe I'll get super lucky or my scholarship will be brilliant enough to carry me. But like, ultimately, I'm kind of like a risk averse person. And I wasn't willing, I think, to sacrifice all that to go into like pursuing my PhD. I worked for a while at a tech startup that was um, a very mixed experience. There were some lovely people there. I also had some like racist experiences there that weren't too great. It prompted me to reconsider law school. I still had my LSAT and it was about to expire because it expires in five years. And then I decided to apply. Sorry, that was a very long-winded story. (laughs) No, it's always very interesting to hear like how people came to the conclusion that like law school was the way for them. So that's, that's really unique, honestly. Super. Yeah. And I mean, also yeah, just very stupid, yes. <laughs> not even though, because I think so many people, especially on TikTok, want to think that it's like if you want to go to law school, you have to be like planning on going to law school from the time you're eight years old. And it's, yeah. I don't think it's any of our experiences. No. <laughs> so since you were working in a tech startup, did that affect any of your interest areas when you started law school? Like, oh, you might be interested in tech stuff or anything like that? Yeah, I think starting out, I was definitely interested in tech transactions, specifically like the intersection of entertainment tech and transactional work here in Los Angeles. I mean, my school is really big on entertainment law. A lot of people end up doing that, but it's also a very difficult path because it relies heavily on networking And a lot of people, if you don't have the grades, you start out in like the mailroom of some agency, which is really cool, but also you're getting paid like $20 an hour out of law school. And I think, again, just going back to the survivability aspect of that, it's really difficult. Um, But back to your original question with um, being in the tech industry before, I was in customer service, then I got promoted to social media. And so I wasn't really like doing engineering or like patents or anything like that. Um, but I did think that what I really liked about the tech industry was like its capacity for innovation. Um, I don't want to get too into the weeds of my old company, but basically, even though I think the company wasn't very well run, the product that it had created was actually phenomenal. It was supposed to keep babies safe in their sleep and prevent like sudden infant death syndrome. And it was definitely effective in a lot of ways with increasing like baby sleep and stuff, although there's disputes about that. So I can't speak to that. But um, I think that they did increase a lot of infant safety and there was a lot of great work being done there. So seeing, uh, and before that, I had always thought of tech as like a very tech bro space, like especially being in Northern California for college. um, I really thought of it more as like the Facebooks and Amazons of the world. So seeing that capacity for genuine growth and innovation was really cool. And that's actually how I ended up getting my first um, one L summer job and subsequently my two L summer job. At my school, we participate in a program called the Law and Tech Diversity Collaborative. I don't know if you all have it at your school. I think about 20 schools that are underrepresented in big law participate and Berkeley for some reason. They're also part of the program, but I don't think they're underrepresented in big law. Um, But basically, I don't think they have the program works. No, I don't think so at all. Like, oh, okay, I guess you're here too. Um, The way the program works is that you do this screener. um, Well, if they like your materials, you do a screener with the program. And then they send your information to about like 20 or 30 tech companies that are part of the program. So like some big ones, I think are like Uber, GoPro, Snap, like they're all part of that program. And then from there, the companies based on the information from your screen decide whether they want to interview you as well and so um, I had a couple companies that were interested in interviewing me and from there they pass you on to their partner law firm so it's one of the law firms that they're a client of and then you go through essentially three or four rounds of interviews for the most part Um, I think last February I did about 20 hours of interviews and each company and law firm pairing 
chooses one student and it's supposed to be similar to like a 1L diversity pipeline, except you spend half the summer at the firm and then half the summer seconded to the client. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the client that I was working for, it was a fintech company. I don't mind naming them because I like them. Um, it was Lending Club. So they do a lot of fintech work and they're working with a lot of like marginalized communities. And so, but that made me realize, even though I really love the mission of a lot of tech spaces, it doesn't necessarily um, gel with like the way my brain works as much. It was it's a lot more transactional, which is what I thought I wanted to do. But then spending time at the firm actually made me realize I wanted to do litigation. So I'm really grateful that my experience in tech got me where I am today because I don't think I would have had these opportunities otherwise. But seeing the legal side of things, I don't know that I'm that interested in tech anymore. Even though everyone there was really fantastic, it was more so the work than anything. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, you don't know until you try it. And you're like, oh, actually, maybe I don't really like that as much as I thought I would. But then, like you said, it leads you to something that you're way more interested in. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because more people like start out being like, I definitely want to do litigation. And then they go to a firm and they're like, never mind. (laughs) So it's interesting to see the other the other side of that. I think it's also partial of my personality too. When I went to law school, everyone was like, because I think when you go to law school, people think of litigation as what being a lawyer is, you know, or such a small sliver of litigation, being in a courtroom. And everyone was like, you would be good for that. Like, this is a great decision. And I was like, actually, I want to do transactional work because I, I don't know. I personally feel like I spent a lot of my life being very assertive and some might say aggressive, though I think that's a gendered way of putting it. So now that you're more interested in litigation, are you interested in anything specifically or just kind of like a whole team of litigation interest? Yeah, I think I am more interested just in litigation more broadly since I don't know all the specifics of like different areas of litigation. Um, Next summer, I'm going to be in the same firm that I was in last summer, but they let their 1Ls like explore and the 2Ls have to commit to a group. So I committed to commercial litigation. Um, In the LA office specifically, they work with a lot of food and healthcare companies, but there are two partners um, that have pretty robust practices in and of themselves. And one of them does fashion trademark litigation. And then the other one does cannabis um, litigation. And both of those are areas I'm really interested in the fashion trademark stuff specifically, because they work a lot with, actually, I don't know how much I can say. So they work against a lot of um, counterfeiting companies that are in China. And um, my Chinese is not amazing, but it is definitely something I would love to bring into like my practice. I think it's a really cool opportunity. Obviously, I'm here to talk about fashion today. So I love fashion. And I think it's just a really cool way to like suture my different interests. And for cannabis, um, well, I do like cannabis, but the real reason why it's legal here, so I can say that. But, um, I guess not federally, but um, the reason I want to get into that is because I've heard that like if you get into an emerging market as a young associate, it really gives you the opportunity to establish yourself as an expert in a field much more quickly than you would be able to in a more traditional field. So like with crypto and stuff, which I know you guys just did a podcast on that. I haven't had the chance to listen to that episode yet. But um, with like crypto and stuff, I've heard from a lot of people that like a lot of the experts skew younger. And so I hope that translates to like cannabis as well, where like maybe I could um, become someone more established in that field more quickly. That's very true. I, I also heard that over the summer because we we spoke to a bunch of different teams at our firm and at um, different locations of the firm. And there were experts on like the randomest stuff. And it didn't even necessarily like make sense for what team they were on, but it was just something that they took interest in super early and then became like the state's expert on it. Yeah, I the firm I was at last summer is actually pretty big in entertainment. Um <laughs> And I can tell you guys more about that later. I don't really want it on um, recorded. But last summer, I I did some of that work. It was really cool. The only thing is that they don't really hire first years for the entertainment group. 
like unless you have a lot of experience in the entertainment industry. And I also find that not necessarily at the firm that I was at, but in general, entertainment lawyers do have a, like, I think lawyers already carry a pretty big ego. And I think that you compound that with entertainment and some of them are acting like they're talent. And I'm like, whoa, this is a little bit too much for me. I can't deal with this. And I think that like, and people say that a lot out here, I think. I don't know um, if you guys hear about entertainment lawyers as much over there, but like people, are, you can tell it, uh, who's an entertainment lawyer in a room because they'll tell you that they're an entertainment lawyer. That's funny. Most of, I know me and Soph have talked before. There are a couple of creators that are interested in entertainment law. I think Dom is, and then what's, who's the other person? Their at was like law school, but it was like S-K-O-L. Oh, Andy. Andy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they like just didn't, they're not working in the legal field right now because they need to get like other experience in entertainment yeah. before actually being able to work. Just I, the whole field of entertainment law is very much very bonkers in LA to me and I don't think I understand it fully <laughs> it feels very like velvet curtains like yeah. you see all like the glamorous stuff of it and the very cool parts of it but you don't know how to get in it's very it's like um like a speakeasy type of vibe like you walk into the store and you don't know there's like a private bar behind the fridge like it's that type of vibe to me I actually thought it was really impressive that she came from Washington and then was able to get into the entertainment space that way because I think it's very difficult um, if you're not local since so much is, like you said, that kind of velvet curtain, speakeasy vibe. Like in our school, our biggest club on campus is the Entertainment Law Society. And like we have a, someone who used to, I think, be a director at an agency that's now a professor and like director of our entertainment center. So, so much of that I think we take for granted as being like demystified. But something I've heard, I don't know if this is true because I'm not going into entertainment law, is that like the path that like Andy's taking, it you work two years in the industry, but then you very quickly, because you have that JD, can get promoted into a legal role after those two years. So I think it's like a sacrifice that some people are willing to make. Not me though. Yeah, yeah. that's how I understood it from, from Andy's posts. Yeah, because originally they were going to do like boutique IP, got the like very, very random email that was like, hey, are you interested in entertainment law? Like, let's do an interview. And then has been doing like assistant work or like something like that. And then was studying for the bar, but they haven't posted in so long. So I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I'm being an assist- a lot of my friends are assistants in entertainment, not um, after doing JDs. They're just in entertainment. And it's so demanding. You know, the work is very thankless, especially in terms of both compensation and I think in with the way that they're treated. And she just had to do that. Like, it was what it was. And that was that. And so I feel like I could totally understand why someone might start posting less after having like such an emotionally taxing job where you're always on call. I yeah. guess that's also well, though. For sure. My, my boyfriend's sibling was an NBC page. Um, in LA and that is now an assistant I believe Um, and the way that their dad is still funding like paying their rent because they get paid so little like I just it's so wild to me and then also it's just like okay so the only people who can do this are people who have parents who can pay their rent for them yeah essentially I think or you like really save up and you basically are living on like 40k a year in LA which is very yeah that is scary that is a scary amount as if there weren't enough barriers to entering entertainment law holy crap yeah I think there's a couple of firms that do hire people like I know Shepard Mullen there's a legal um, clerk program or legal intern program. It's separate from their regular summer associates. I'm not sure why. And so they do like a whole entertainment thing out here. But otherwise, I have a couple of friends who are trying to enter ent- the entertainment law field. And it just seems really difficult in terms of like funding and stuff. 
Yeah, that that just seems like unlivable at that point. Because it, it goes back to the thing that I always talk about when you have to consider all the factors for law school, da, 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 da. like the cost of living changes so much how you view like a lump sum of money, like depending on where you live, some of those amounts are just simply unlivable, unlivable. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like, I think law school favors people with like different types of privilege. I know both of you talk about this on your pages too. Um, but I think that entertainment law like compounds the privilege on both ends. And it's just like, similar to like the concept of like intersectionality, right? Like that intersection, I think is so difficult for people who don't necessarily have like parental or fina like parental financial support or other sources of income and stuff. Yeah, it's wild. It's very wild. Um, kind of pivoting back to like social media in general and like what connects us all and like how we invite on guests. So typically we tend to invite on people who either have like a presence on TikTok or a presence on Instagram, or we know them and they are in law school and that's like how we ask them or they nominate themselves, et cetera. Um, so I guess we'll like lean into what made you start posting about law school and fashion. This is very embarrassing. So <laughs> buckle up. But my my parents are pretty like strict, I think, and very cognizant of the way that people are perceived on social media. And so back in college, I really liked going to raves. And but on my social media, my parents were on my social media and I wanted to post all these cute rave outfits that I had. And my obviously I didn't want my parents to see them because they were a little bit skimpier. And so I ended up just making a separate Instagram to post my outfits. And then I gained some traction from there. And I realized that I really liked making content um, aside from just like posting my outfits and stuff like that. And during COVID, um, you know, with the, this sounds kind of weird, I promise it'll all tie together at the end. Um, with the rise of like Asian hate, it made me realize how superficial a lot of the rave community preaching like unity was because a lot of times people would be having discussions on Twitter or on Instagram even about like these different issues within the rave community. I mean, especially in SoCal, so many, a large percentage of attendees at these type of events are Asian, but they're not really portrayed as much in the media that the companies that put these events on. Like they don't really have as much like media presence. And so we were talking about this online and just Increasingly, I noticed in the rape community, people were saying really disparaging things about Asian people while purporting to be like all peace, love, unity. And it really turned me off from continuing to create content in that space. I think it was just very demoralizing. It, but I realized that I really enjoyed creating content as a creative outlet. So I started to think about what other parts of my life I felt comfortable sharing and that I actually could sustain content for over a long period of time. And for me, that answer was kind of fashion. Although prior to COVID, I had about two to three years where all I wore was sweatpants and I wasn't really into fashion. It was when I was working at like that tech startup. But um, during COVID, I was really able to like rediscover what I thought as like, sorry, during COVID, I was able to rediscover what I found to be a really great creative outlet. And I really was able to cultivate my personal style more in a way that I don't think I'd been able to since high school. So yeah, that's why I create content now. <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, I think, um, especially in tech spaces, most of my brothers work in some form of tech. And um, I can't say like fashion is put on a pillar in these companies. I think my I think my brother, he referred to what he wore every day as a uniform, except for it was like jeans and Converse and a gray hoodie. And it's like, babe, <laughs> well, it's not a uniform. <laughs> That's just you being really boring. <laughs> so I'm sure that that wasn't exactly uh, giving you much inspiration either. Yeah. And I think that it was also like, so the company I worked for was owned by um, a family actually and like a celebrity pediatrician and there were just like a lot of I felt like double standards around what different people in the company could do like some of the higher up people 
they were straight up wearing like see-through dresses where I could see their underwear and um which is more power to you like I would wear that on the street totally fine but then on the other hand I was told like oh we shouldn't be wearing skirts um to work and stuff like that so it was just I decided okay I'm just gonna play it safe and I was honestly also so depressed I just didn't have any energy to do anything else so I would just pick out my boyfriend's clothes every day and wear his clothes to work valid (laughs) You know, it served its purpose. You got out, so <laughs> you get to Sorry. do a lot of cool stuff now. Yeah. One thing I really, like, appreciate about the videos that you make about clothes is you always talk about, like, what setting you're going to be in wearing whatever outfit you're wearing. Like, you always really emphasize, like, oh, I have this event and I'm going to this thing. or I have school and like this is what I'm up to or I have a friend's birthday and we're doing this like I appreciate that because some people are just like here's my outfit bye (laughs) I actually think it's super well I never even noticed that I appreciate you pointing that out because I feel like I just like ramble on a lot as you can tell here but I also think that clothing for me at least is super setting dependent and dependent on like how comfortable I am with people and who who's going to be around me for example in college I felt like the reason why I say like my style now has really reverted to my high school style is because in college I started college pretty young um I was 15 years old and I just felt really out of place um because I was 15 (laughs) and so I always wanted people to take me more seriously so I would wear a lot of like more business casual or like a lot of blazers and stuff I was like five years too early because like casual blazers were like all the rage in like 2020, 2021. But back in 2015, um, they were definitely not a big thing. And so I was always just like trying to make myself seem like I could be taken seriously because I felt so much. I wouldn't call it imposter syndrome in that instance. I definitely have it now in law school. But um, in that instance, it was more so just by virtue of being younger than everyone. I felt like I had something to prove and people wouldn't take me as seriously especially like I'm Asian and I look young. So I think like all dressing, like dressing up and stuff is super context dependent. And now that I'm in a place like LA um, where I feel a lot more comfortable, I feel like I can be a little bit more experimental with my clothes and stuff like that. But of course there's still like a lot of professional settings where you have to consider different sorts of people that you might meet or even if it's not a professional event, you have to think about whether you're going to encounter someone who might have those professional expectations of you. I mean, I think that story and like your upbringing goes into the next question, which is about Asian American representation on TikTok and specifically in law school, because as we've talked about before, it's just a lot of skinny white girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think what I find really interesting about that. So I don't follow that many law talk people. Like I follow people who follow me a lot. And then I also have a couple of creators that I follow. But in my first year of law school, I actually made a like concentrated effort to not consume any law talk content. Like if something about law school came up on my free page, I'd be like, not interested. (laughs) And it was only after my summer job that I started to like get more into law talk because I realized I actually did want to pursue this as a career and I wasn't as like upset about it anymore. But um What's interesting is I was actually surprised by how few like East Asian and just Asian law talk creators there are that I see, because I do think like just statistically Asians are an overrepresented minority in law schools. And I think that that data needs to be broken down too, because obviously I think that varies a lot by ethnicity, like same thing with like income and stuff. So like within Asian subgroups, I'm sure there's a lot of like ethnic groups that aren't represented and are definitely underrepresented. But I find it interesting that there's an overrepresentation of Asians in law school, but I don't see a lot on law talk, especially compared to the fashion space where I actually do see a lot of East Asian women. And I think that goes to like colorism too. I don't see a lot of non-East Asian women in terms of Asian women in fashion. But for law talk specifically, I think it could also be that And I'm not sure this is just me theorizing, like spitting off the cuff. But I think also a lot of Asian people who pursue things like law, um, there's a lot of parental pressure involved in that. And 
I know I feel that too. And then similarly, like I have my parents saying to me, you need to be very careful about what you put out online. And so I wonder if other East Asian people are being fed that type of rhetoric. Like I can think of the like biggest Asian law talk creator that I know. Um, and I think about how she talks about how she doesn't have a good relationship with her parents. And I think that if you do have a good relationship with your parents and you put a lot of stock in what they say, I wonder if that might influence some people's decisions not to put themselves out there on social media. I also think just for me personally, like I feel like um, despite the fact that I have a lot of privileges, I am cognizant of the fact that like if I slip up and make a mistake, it could be a lot more detrimental to me than like my white male counterparts. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think you made a lot of good points in there, especially about the different regions, ethnicities, and colorism on top of that, especially even just with the title of Asian American, like there are so many regions in Asia, so many ethnicities in Asia. And like, even if you just go like east to west, like there's like, if you just cross section the continent, like there's so many different variations, like all the way through. And I mean, I think something that is like weirdly helped with that is like our generation's affinity for putting our like flags in our bios. <laughs> like it's kind of like corny as that is, like it really helps you like identify other people who might have like a similar upbringing to you or like even if you guys are from the same country, like it's kind of corny that we do that, but it's also like a little bit of a community builder. No, I really like that. I don't put the flag in my bio because it doesn't fit my aesthetic colors. I'm like red, blue, and white. Mm. Like that's both US I want. And I'm like, mm, that is too bright for me. I'm like, maybe if we had a pink flag. It's funny. And then the last portion of our discussion for today is relating to fashion, as this episode is about. But like, what are law students wearing to school? Um, and I guess we'll just begin with like, how would you describe your style specifically and like what you typically wear to school? Yeah, so the other day, my roommate who also goes to law school said like one of the most insulting things, unintentional, not insulting, but he was like, yeah, your style only works because you're Asian. He was like, if you were a white girl, you'd be giving like Dixie crap. And I was like, he's from Nebraska. So I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, what? Dixie crap and he's like I don't even know what like two words that comes from but it's basically like southern sorority girl and that's like my biggest fear sometimes with my clothing is that like I'm dipping into like Alabama rush in my outfit like no but I think that like too much sequins here (laughs) I, I do think that like there was a period last year where I went too heavy on the southern sorority girl look and now I'm like reeling it back in and trying to figure out how to incorporate more of my personal style into that. But I personally would describe my style as obviously very girly. Like I like ruffles, I like bows and stuff. And I really like pastels. I think that they just complement me a little bit better. Although I think with a skin tone analysis, they said I was supposed to be jewel tones. I was like, forget that. I don't give a fuck. And so I would say like girly and like trendy, but not hyper trendy either. Like I try to be And I say try to because I don't think I'm very good at it. I'm trying to be better about it. I try to not fall into like micro trends. And I think that's so hard when you're trying to create fashion content because obviously that's the type of content that the algorithm's going to push out when they're trends. But as a consumer, I try to think about how like there are certain trends that I do like and that I do want to incorporate into my wardrobe. But I really try to think, okay, if this wasn't popular would I still want to wear this? Because I don't want to buy something that I'm not going to wear, like, especially with, like, accessories and stuff that I'm not going to wear, like, down the road. So I'd say, like, girly, trendy, and, like, embellished. I really like, I do like sequins, and I like all those little details and stuff, and I feel like I draw a lot of heavy inspiration from, like, the coquette, like, movement, the coquette aesthetic. I really like, like, ballet core. When I was younger, I actually took and quit ballet three or four times before my mom realized I just wanted it for the tutus and I actually hated doing the dances <laughs> and she was like I'm just gonna buy you some tutus okay I was like oh okay <laughs> and then something that I think is really popular that's gonna be really popular this spring um and you see that with like 
I don't know if you guys have seen this because I think it's very niche, but you know those sheer dresses with like flowers on them that are like mesh and like bright colors and sometimes black too. And the most popular brand that's been putting those out is called like Fancy Club. Um, so those, it's like F-A-N-C-I Club and a lot of celebrities have been spotted in those and influencers too. I think that speaks to what's going to be really popular this spring, which a lot of people have been forecasting is like mermaid core, which is, yeah. oh. which when I first heard that, I was like, what? But it's basically just drawing on a lot of like sea motifs. And rather than having those like more rigid ruffles, you're seeing stuff that's a little bit more flowy, loose, kind of like a bohemian infused um, version of that like girly aesthetic. And I personally really like that too. So. I think those are all things that really inspire my personal style, just very girly palette and like fabrics and details and stuff like that. Something that I've, I've appreciated about your account from the very start is that I think a lot of law students make fashion content trying to look like a law student, um, which is like one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire world. I don't need another fucking Elle Woods ripoff. Um, so that's just like, I love it so much. I don't want to see another girl in a pink blazer. And I, the, I think you're the only like fashion doctor I follow, honestly. <laughs> I'm flattered that you're even calling me a fashion TikToker because I'm just like putting out random crap, but. Um, I definitely maybe. consider you one. I think. Yeah, I don't. I do. I yeah, I, you know, with the whole Elle Woods aesthetic, I actually like had a really long talk with one of my friends about that because sometimes in my comments and stuff, people will say that like, oh my God, you're like Elle Woods. Not very like often, but like occasionally. And I talked to my friends about how like when I first wanted to go to law school, like beginning of college and stuff, I really identified with her. Then as I started to, um, I think, become more, we become more cognizant of my own ethnicity, race, and background. I didn't identify with her like nearly as much. And I think that I just wish, I don't think that like, I, it's weird to say this about a fictional character, but I don't think like she was necessarily perpetuating white feminism in the film. Like, I think if anything, like one of my friends made a really good point about how she's always uplifting other women, which is really fantastic to see in a world where, you know, that's not necessarily encouraged. At the same time, I do wish that there was something that could represent more people of color and our different experiences. Um, because I think that the way she dressed and the way that she was able to act in that film was very much mitigated by both her white privilege and her financial privilege. And um, I also think it was just kind of unrealistic. I mean, we can, I feel like any law student can talk about that. But um, yeah, I just personally don't really identify with her. And I think that the, but I do see where some people might want to lean into that. Like one, maybe for like branding on TikTok, I can see how that's very useful to um, grow your following and stuff. But also too, I think that maybe if people are dealing with imposter syndrome or dealing with, um, you know, like I think I'm very confident in the way that I dress and my personal style. And I think that that is a result of like the time I've taken to develop that, but also my privilege. And so I can see how she, being like Elle Woods like would be like a role model to some other people who may not feel as comfortable dressing the way that they want to dress in school. For sure. And I think like specifically about this Elle Woods aesthetic, I have completely in my mind separated the Elle Woods aesthetic from Elle Woods. I just think that they're different things because I agree. Like, I don't think Elle Woods as a character necessarily perpetuates white feminism. However, I think that social media perpetuates white feminism and the Elle Woods aesthetic is like a big part of that when it comes to law talk. Um, I think that because of the kinds of people who get attention for dressing in this certain way, it's necessarily tied to like girl boss white feminism in my mind. I hate girl boss culture. Like <laughs> I literally cannot stand it I think it's just another way to like package capitalism I'm like okay I'm like 
I don't I don't like the fact that's like girl boss. Like, why can't you just be a boss? But also, why do we even have to be bosses? <laughs> like, why is that something to aspire to? Okay, last question we did was, how would you describe your style? Um, okay, I guess we'll move into like, what motivates you to get dressed every day or more so like style and outfit most days? Yeah, honestly, I think COVID really changed things for me. So before COVID, like I mentioned, I was just in sweats all the time at my tech company. And then in COVID, I think like not being able to go out, not being able to dress up and do things made me realize like how much I truly miss that. And obviously COVID's still going on. I just mean during the height when no one was leaving the house. Like I never really left my house for a year and a half because my parents, well, I didn't live with them, but they were very adamant about that. Um, Mm -hmm. They own like a small hospital in Taiwan. So like very health conscious. And um, so I basically had no opportunity to like dress up or do anything other than like Instagram stuff. And it kind of made me realize how much I took that for granted, like being able to style clothes, being able to share that. And I think for me, particularly with law school, like I don't really enjoy going to law school. Um, it's I don't know, maybe some people do. Um, not me, not a lot of people that I know. Um, and I also find going to class kind of unnecessary a lot of times to excel in exams. So the way that I motivate myself to go, it's not so much that I'm motivated to dress up. It's like, I need something to motivate me to dress up. It's like dressing up motivates me to go out and do things. And I also think that like, so I live, I have a roommate, but most of the time I spend at my boyfriend's place. So I don't really have a lot of alone time. And I would define myself as an extrovert maybe leaning towards like more of an ambivert as I grow older. But I do also really enjoy like my alone time in the morning. I'm a very grumpy person. And so I think having the time to like do my makeup, style an outfit, like put something together, it makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel good about going out. It's kind of like a meditative experience where I just spend my time in the morning listening to podcasts, sometimes like trashy reality TV, sometimes like news. Lately, I've been listening to your guys's podcast too. And um, like, I don't know, I just really like the whole experience, almost like the ritualistic experience of it all. I'm sure there's a sociology paper to be written there somewhere about the rituals, like feminine rituals and stuff like that. But I also think like, when I knew I was going to come on this podcast, I was kind of thinking more about that, especially when um, you guys told me about what you might be asking and stuff. And I was thinking, like, why does this make me feel good? Like, yeah, there is a meditative aspect of it. But I also think that, and I see this a lot on my For You page, is, like, there is an aspect of it of, like, why does putting on makeup make me feel good? It's not just the action. I feel better about myself and the way that I look. But that's kind of also entrenched in, like, the patriarchy and the male gaze. And there's, I don't know if this is on any of your For You pages, but there was often like a lot of stuff where people are like, when I used to dress for the male gaze and it would be a bunch of pictures of like 2012 fashion. And then they're like, now that I'm dressing, not for the male gaze. And I'm like, that's just the trends these days. Like you are not, not dressing for the male gaze. In fact, the patriarchy is like inextricable from fashion. I would never say that I'm not dressing for the male gaze, even though I'm not dressing in what men find attractive. It's so like deeply entrenched in those social norms that I think, I don't know, I would have to think a lot more to fully articulate my feelings about all of that. What I know is that it makes me feel good. Why it makes me feel good, just kind of a different, like kind of a whole different ball game there that I'm not really ready to deconstruct because I need my coping mechanisms. <laughs> I would fully second all of that. And I, I talked about this the other day, actually, because I get asked so much, especially by people at school, like, why do you wear makeup every day when you wear a mask at school? And I was like, I don't really get why people are asking me this question. But then I'm like, okay, I guess it makes sense. Cause it's like, why are you putting on makeup if you're like covering it up essentially? And I'm the same way where like, it's very much a ritual to me. Like I get up, I do things the exact same way every single morning. That's just how I like to do things. That's how I've always done things. I think it's sort of like stemmed a little bit in rebellion from my mom because she's very much, my mom's kind of granola-y, I'm not gonna lie. 
and she just like does not care about any of that stuff like she does not care about like what people think she looks like she does not care about wearing makeup she just like she just does not care and I like always loved it like I just love like very pretty things in whatever way I like think they're pretty and so when I started wearing makeup my mom was so against it like so against it and kind of she would say like mean things about it too which let everybody needs to wear ugly makeup before they can get to cute makeup okay like I did not need to hear it from my mom like your eyebrows look like shit like I didn't need to hear that I was and I was gonna do what I was gonna do regardless and we're at a good point now where I love how I do my makeup but I think like part of that was because she was so much not like that and then like the other maternal figure in my life was my great grandma and she like she always got her hair done like that was one of her ways of like getting out of the house was like getting her hair done and like doing cute things and like getting ready and stuff so like still to this day even though like my great grandma is past like my family always says like oh we have to wait like for Sophia to put her face on because that's like what we would say when my grandma would do it so now I'm like, I'm just putting my face on every day. Like, that's just what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I fully, I, I don't do my makeup. Um, Probably stemming from the exact opposite was like, I came from a family that was very concerned about appearances. And it was like, you have to be put together before you go outside. Um, And I think I've just rebelled a little in the opposite direction. But I do, um, I've had several people at school comment to me about how I only wear real pants to school. Like I don't show up in leggings or sweatpants. And to me, it's just like, if I show up in leggings or sweatpants to school and I already don't want to be here, I'm going to fall asleep. Like I need to act like this is a job that I'm going to and wear real clothes. That's totally true. I told my friend I was going to come on your pod to talk about fashion. She was like, you should tell them that like 50% of the time you dress up like in your videos and the other 50%, you look like a bum. And I was like, it's 80-20 split. It's just because it's winter right now. I I don't like dress up. I'm like, I barely, right now, obviously, I literally cannot stand the rain. It rains in Southern California and everything's out the door for me. Yesterday, I was like wearing the ugliest outfit ever and I showed up at brunch and my friends were like, we thought we were going to dress cute. I'm like, it's raining. Oh, that's supposed to. I'm like, in this like, fourth phase. I think it's really interesting that you guys talk about your upbringings in relation to um, like how you choose to present yourself now. Because now that I think about it, when I was younger, um, like, well, I don't remember before I moved to Taiwan as much, but when I moved to Taiwan, like very much so, like we weren't ever supposed to, like, I don't think other than in her house, I've ever seen my grandma in anything other than a tweed set, like that goes down to her knees. Um, maybe like when we visit the farm, no, even then, I think she's even wearing skirts. And then my mom, um, she doesn't work. She just um, goes to lunch with people. <laughs> and um, she's in those situations, they always have to be very put together and stuff. And so I think coming here, actually, it was the first time that I really had the freedom to be less put together and also more skimpy because I think over in Southern Taiwan, like I think Northern Taiwan's a little more progressive and modern, but Southern Taiwan, which is where I was from, is less so so I couldn't wear really anything skimpy unless I was going out to the clubs and stuff and then now thinking about this in starting to dress up more I think wasn't just in reaction to COVID it was also the fact that like I know eventually now um unless my partner and I break up which I guess whatever that happened um but I've been with him for a very long time and um we're planning to move to Indonesia together. And that country is a lot more conservative in terms of dress. His mom actually doesn't even let him leave the house in sweatpants, like won't let him go out without sweatpants. So but like, that's a bad look. And then he'll be like, oh, but my friends that are more affluent than me do it. And then she'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, you can go with them and wear that. And it's very much about like keeping up appearances, keeping up face. And to be clear, I really like his mom. She's very nice. She actually went to fashion school. So I think that appearances do really matter to her in that way too. 
But for me, getting ready here feels like a privilege. Like it's what motivates me to go out. But the moment that someone imposes the need to like look good or to like, for example, for like job interviews, I hate putting on makeup for job interviews. I'm using the exact same makeup routine. I'm doing the exact same. Well, I guess if it's on Zoom, I put on a little more blush, um, put things a little bit darker so it pops on camera. But I'm doing the exact same thing as when I'm getting ready for like my TikTok. But then suddenly I'm like, oh, this is like a thing that's been imposed on me and I hate it now. (laughs) And I think that like similarly, like when I'm abroad and stuff like that, I feel a lot more resentful of getting ready because I feel like I need to get ready, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I think that makes so much sense. I even over the summer when I was working at my firm, I made an effort to not wear makeup to the firm because I wanted, I like, I, I didn't want to create an expectation that I would show up like that. You know, I wanted it to be like, um, a place where I was (laughs) accepted if I didn't want to put a face on, if I didn't want to put that effort in because, you know, I'm there for a reason and the reason is not my appearance. Um, so I, I definitely relate to the, like, when you're forced to do it, it, it takes all of the joy away from it. Yeah. I, I think that's really cool. That's a really great way to approach things. So I, sorry, do you guys mind if I ask you a question too? Yeah. I'm curious. Okay. So you say that like you, um, let me think about how to phrase this. Okay. So you say like, you're just wearing what you like to wear and that it's not reflective of your abilities or capabilities as an like individual or as a lawyer, you know, law student. How do you, but do you ever dress in a way that tries to project a certain air or do you feel like you have any preconceived notions of people because of the ways that they dress in law school? Because I feel like regardless of whether, like for me personally, regardless of whether I don't feel like my outer appearance affects my outer appearance is reflective of my inner ability. I feel like I definitely make judgments and have to check myself um, on the judgments that I'm making about other people, just like even on TikTok too, you know, and just like a snap like judgment there. I know that you just had a poll, Brianna, about that on your Instagram too. And I was like, so many people are saying their cre- those creators' appearances doesn't affect their followers. Like you're a liar. Liars, all of them. Yeah. Um... I think for me, I I would only sort of change the way that I dress when I attend like more professional things, because I think to me, like school wise, at least I tend to have like a uniform, like, because I'm also like a jeans wearer. Um, I don't tend to wear a lot of sweatpants to school unless I'm literally just going to do school and leaving. Um, and especially because I have my externship right now, like I'm I dress the same as I dressed last semester, the same as I dressed 1L, the same as I dressed in undergrad. I also didn't really wear sweatpants to school in undergrad. So like my day-to-day wear is very consistently the same, like jeans. I wear a lot of sweaters. I'm kind of a boots person. I wear like the same pair of boots every day. Um, I have tennis shoes. Like that's just what I like to wear and is most comfortable to me. I think where my like fashion expression comes out a little bit more is in jackets like I love jackets I have a lot of jackets so I wear pretty like basic um sometimes more neutral like normal clothes and then I'll wear like a nicer jacket or just like a more interesting jacket which is just like how I like to do things um but I think in more professional settings I've definitely had to figure out what I like to wear and what I'm comfortable wearing because I never worked in a setting where I had to be business professional. I never worked in a setting where I really even had to be business casual. So coming into school, it was honestly kind of hard for me to figure out like what would be comfortable for me to wear and also appropriate. And also with the added factor that I have like a really big chest and it makes it so uncomfortable to wear like certain kinds of jackets, certain kinds of blazers, because I am very cognizant of the fact that like that comes off as sexual often. And even if it's not overtly sexual, like just seeing cleavage is like too much for people. So like, that's something that I'm definitely cognizant of. And that's probably like the biggest factor in how I choose to dress because a lot of the time I'm making choices to make my chest look smaller 
So I think that's like the one thing that I am like very about. Yeah, I am. I I've talked about this on TikTok before, but probably not in a while. Um, I absolutely think that the way that I dressed while working in public defense had nothing to do with my own personal style. And I think that almost every public defender would tell you the same thing. Um, especially when you're in the South, there are a lot of expectations about how lawyers look and, and courtroom attire and decorum. And the reality is if you don't play into that and give judges what they want, they're going to treat your indigent client worse. So like you bite the bullet and you wear that like fugly ass black suit with a button up every single day. And it's like, it sucks, but it would be so incredibly selfish of you to go in there wearing a pink suit and have a judge or a prosecutor treat your client more harshly because of their own biases. That's my opinion on it. I think that's most public defenders' opinions on it. I actually know a public defender who um, says that she dresses pretty stylishly and nicely to court, but it's still the same basic blueprint of like the black suit, the button up, but she like makes it work for her. And something she says is that she even wears that when she doesn't go to court. Like if she's visiting people in prison and stuff, because she said that she wants them to feel like that she is just as competent and just as capable as the lawyers on the other side who are being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think I, I found that really like admirable and touching. I'm I mean, I, I never want to be a public defender. I never want to be in any part of the criminal system. I'm like a scaredy cat um, of everything. Like, I would never be a prosecutor. That's my number one no. And that's for other reasons too, not just being a scaredy cat. Like I just morally couldn't do that. But um, I think there are still ways if you, it matters to you to infuse your personal style into things, maybe in like tailoring and fit, but you're absolutely right about like not being able to wear like a pink suit to court and stuff like that either. I actually was a witness um, for, well, I was supposed to be a witness for a trial um, this last January. They ended up settling um, right before I was called in but um, like with the judge and stuff. And when I was in witness prep, the lawyer was telling me that like, um, he was like also trying to educate me, like use it as a learning opportunity, which is really cool. Cause my, fr my firm that I worked for last summer basically took on one of my friends as a pro bono client um, because of what was going on, which was super nice and really cool. Part of why I wanted to go back so badly. Um, and then that lawyer told me though, that he was like, yeah, studies show that in a jury trial, you don't want to wear a three-piece suit with a vest because it gives the air of being too pompous and arrogant. And like the company has a lot of money to dump into these big law lawyers. But then when it's a judge trial, you want to come off as professional as possible, as polished as possible. You put on that three-piece suit. And that's how like they, because they're part of the legal profession, they see that as like a positive versus like, um, if you're defending like someone small or like someone with a jury trial, he says he doesn't emphasize his firm as much either because it gives the same impression as that three-piece suit. And then in front of a judge, you use your firm name to kind of carry that weight and goodwill forward. And I thought that was so interesting, like just in terms of the studies on jury psychology too, in terms of what you're wearing and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's all just like knowing your audience and like putting your client above yourself. Um, and obviously there, are, it can depend on, on the culture that you're in. I would greatly imagine LA is a very different public defender scene than North Carolina. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, yeah. Like here I've heard prosecutors and judges making fun of women for wearing the color red, <laughs> like it is that level of stuff. Um, so I think I, I came in wanting to do public defense and I was like, my fashion sense will never be something that I have to figure out because <laughs> I will never use it. Um, and then I went to a private firm that's business casual and has a really large fashion practice. And I was like, oh, should, maybe I should do this. Um, and that's like the current struggle. 
sorry. We really did. We're like, this is going to be such a lighthearted episode. And then we spent like an hour talking about the patriarchy. Um, but that's all for this week's episode of the in-laws. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the in-laws pod. We post these full length episodes every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern standard time. So make sure to follow us and rate the pod through whichever streaming service you're listening to. I'm going to include all of Samantha's information in our description box So make sure to follow her and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.